If you have your Bible today, I'm going to ask that you would turn to Luke chapter 16. Last week, I started what would be a, a theme on money. Today, we're going to continue on that and about what it means to be a faithful steward, a faithful steward. And I'm going to be reading out of Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. And if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. And if not, then we'll have it for you up on the screen. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job and I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard this, and they were sneering at Jesus. Father, you have told us that it's through your Holy Spirit that you lead us and guide us into all truth. And I recognize, Lord, that as we begin to talk about the topic of money and the Bible and what it has to say, that it makes some people nervous. I pray that your Holy Spirit, under the anointing that you give to us, will anoint our hearts to receive our minds to be obedient and the courage that we need to understand biblically exactly how you want us to handle the things which you entrust to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Last week I spoke to you about some of the dangers that being under the influence of money, and I believe that every one of us has to realize or has to come to an understanding that to one level or another, all of us are under the influence of money but some of the dangers that it can cause us. And we talked about last week that money has the power to distract us from what is really important. We talked about money distorts the way that we view ourselves, that people who have money and people that don't and the way they look at themselves, it distorts the way that you can have a proper assessment of the way you really are. Money has the ability to become a false savior because it gives us a false sense of security and just how secure we really are. And the interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler served as an example of how difficult it can be to make decisions with eternity in mind 
when money is involved. And so today as we approach this passage of Scripture that we just read, we understand that this text can be a little bit distracting because Jesus comes to this parable and then he says to us, I really want you to be like this person. And, and we look at this parable going, I'm not sure that that's the kind of person that I would want to be like. And I believe that some of that comes because we don't fully understand the way that commerce and business was done during that period of times. And there's parts of that that because of that, it doesn't make a great deal of sense to us on the surface. But the point of this parable is very clear, even though the narrative can be a bit confusing. And so to put it in our language today, the story would go like this. There was a very wealthy man who had a number of different businesses, and he had hired a manager to oversee the entire enterprise. In fact, the manager that he hired would, would be acting as a chief operating officer as well as a chief financial officer. He would have been in charge of all of the businesses and the profits that those businesses accumulated, and so he would be in charge of investing those so that there would be a greater return for the owner. The, the decisions that this manager made were binding upon the owner. And we are told that this particular rich man comes and, and in verse 2 he, he speaks to his manager and he says, because of the way you have handled my business, I am giving you your termination notice. You're going to be fired. And you have just a few days to gather things together and to get my affairs in order in order that when I hand this off to somebody else, it can be done well. And so the manager in this particular parable recognizes that because of the way that he has done business, because of the way that he has treated people in the past, that there is nobody in this community that would hire him to do the same work that he is accustomed to. In fact, he begins to be worried because he discusses that his employment options because of the way he has been are reduced to either begging or to manual labor, and he's not good at either of those. And so he decides to do something about it. What he does is he brings in his master's debtors, and he knocks enormous amounts of debt off of what they owe. This, of course, creates friendship. It creates goodwill that he had never had before with these individuals. The debtors are extremely happy because of what he has done, and now there's a relationship that has begun to be developed with these who had been in debt in order that he might leverage this new friendship into a job for him in the future. The part that is really, really difficult for us to understand is in verse 8, when the master sees him knocking the debt off of all of these people that owe him, and then he responds with this verse, the master commended the dishonest manager for acting shrewdly. Does that verse bother anybody else but me? <clears throat> Does that, do you ever just look at that and wonder, what in the world? The master commended the dishonest manager for acting shrewdly. I did a little digging into this because I really wanted to know what this means. And to the best of the ability of some of the theologians that I read, here's what we came up with. The manager was called dishonest because he had put enormous surcharges and fees onto what was the original bill that was owed to his master, and that the original debt that was owed to them with all of these fees, he began to pocket them himself, making himself rich off the debts of those that owed his master. 
So he had given his master a bad name, and he'd given his master a bad reputation because of the surcharges that he had added. And that by taking these fees out, not only did he make the debtors happy, but when his master came along, he now had a better name in town and a better reputation because this man no longer was robbing them. Now, whether or not that that is exactly how that is doesn't really matter. But that is one of the theories that was there. Here is a man that Jesus says to us is being wiser with his use of wealth inside of a secular framework than Jesus said my disciples are inside the perspective of the kingdom of God and how we handle our wealth. So this passage is about Jesus calling his followers to handle their worldly wealth in a proper way. And there are a lot of things. I could spend a lot of time going through this parable and pointing things out, but there's two things that I would like to highlight this morning. Number one, we are stewards of money that is not ours. And number two, we are in need of a love that is not here. We are stewards of money that is not ours. This point that Jesus makes is very brief, but it is hard-hitting. Jesus is likening us to the manager of somebody else's money. The Greek word that is used to describe this man is okonomos, which means it's a word that means manager of the house or steward of the house. And the reason that he is a steward is because he is making a living managing what does not belong to him. He is making a living managing what belongs to somebody else, their money and their business. And so when you are managing somebody else's money, that means that you can't just do with it what you want to do because it is not your money. So what Jesus is actually saying right out of the gate is that whoever you are, if you believe that there is a God, if you are in a relationship with God, you will know that everything that he has put within your hands, all of your money, all of your possessions, everything you have is not rightfully yours. So stop acting like it is. Americans in particular, I believe probably more so than any place else in the world, believe that if I've got money, I made that money. It was my savvy. It was my business acumen. It was my hard work. It was my education. It was my work ethic. It was my action. I did it all, and it is my money. I was reminded of that commercial. Said, it's my money and I want it now. That probably describes the vast majority of Americans. But let me put this into perspective for you. How many of you believe there's a God? Some of you are going, I don't know what you're going to ask next, so I'm a little hesitant. If you believe that there's a God, then first of all, you understand that he made you alive this morning. You woke up with breath. Do you know that there's a big difference in the earning potential between those that are alive and those that are dead? Massively different. If you believe there's a God, then he made you alive, and the gift of life is one that he has given to you. Secondly, you're healthy. It's fascinating to me that when Christian people get sick, oftentimes we say, why did God let this happen? Now, we are in the middle of pollen season, and it is killing me today. 
I have a throat that every time I breathe in, it feels whatever pollen is being released now is messing me up. And this morning I woke up and said, Lord, today I'm preaching about stewardship and money. You would think that you would take the pollen out of the air for me today with this important message. And then he reminded me, you woke up alive, didn't you? Yes. End of argument. You see, we live in a fallen world where everyone and everything is unraveling. And the real question we should ask is, how is God holding us together for so long? He is the glue that literally keeps us going, and we have all honor and glory to him for holding us together. Every single day that you are alive and every single day that you are well is a gift from God. So let me say, well, what about your talents? What about your abilities, the things that you are naturally good at, some of the things that you've been educated to be good at? Where did you get those from? Do you think that those were just something that you developed on your own, or do you believe that God gave you all of those? Or let me add this, what about the circumstances in which we live in here? One of the things that we often hear is, I work hard for what I got. Have any of you ever said that? Have any of you ever heard somebody say that? It's amazing how many more of you have heard somebody say that than actually feel as if you have ever said that. That I work hard for what I've got. Can I tell you that missions, trips will change your perspective about what hard work looks like in different circumstances? I remember being on a mountaintop in Nicaragua with a group of young people from our state several years ago. I don't know that I have ever been anywhere to see people work so hard just to live. And I came home recognizing hard work alone does not provide great. It's the circumstances in which you have been born into and that you live. So to be accurate, you have worked hard for what you've got in the circumstances that God gave you, with the talent that God has blessed you with the life and health and energy that God alone provides you. So it would be easy for us to sit back and say, thank you, God, for providing everything that we have. It all belongs to you. And so it's not yours. David, though he was a wealthy man, records in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 12 through 14, Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. And so in summary of that, if you are a steward... You're a steward of something that does not belong to you. And because of that, God calls his people. And as you grow in discipleship, you come to understand this. He wants us to be radically generous with what he has given to us to take care of of his. And if you are not being radically generous, listen to me closely. It is not just stinginess. It is robbery. It's not miserly or thrifty. It is thievery. It's not just a lack of compassion or selfishness. It is a lack of integrity. If you are a fund manager and you are not using the money the way that the owner says that you should use it and you are taking more for yourself than it was agreed upon, you are a thief. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, will you rob God? 
yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Now, in the Old Testament, everybody was told that 10% of everything they had, crops, income, spices, needed to be given back to the work of the Lord. And some of you right now, some of you that are just new in your walk with Christ and you've never heard about the principle of tithing are going, 10%? Oh, my goodness. That's a lot. If somebody approached you in the open marketplace with a business opportunity and said that you could manage all of their money, that you could manage all of their business, and the terms were this. You got to keep 90% of everything that you made for them, and you only had to give the owner 10%. You would take that job in a New York second because nobody offers those kinds of terms. That would be as generous an offer as you would ever get. But that is exactly what your loving, compassionate God is offering you. He says, it's all my money. It's all my possessions. But I only demand 10%. And if you think those terms are unreasonable, you should think again. Malachi states clearly that if you do not give back to the Lord 10% of what he gives to you, then you are a thief. Now, I have had people say to me, okay, okay, Pastor Doug, tithing is an Old Testament principle. And because of that, we live in the New Covenant, so that 10% no longer applies. That was an Old Testament thing. Let, let me just ask you a question. Do you believe that we live in less grace today than the Old Testament people? Do you believe that we live in less revelation today than they did in the Old Testament? Do you, do you believe that we get less benefits today than they did in the Old Testament? I want, you know, we receive more grace. We receive more benefits. We have more revelation than they did in the Old Testament. Therefore, the standards are always higher for us who have received more. And for those of you who would say, yeah, can you show me one verse in the New Testament that indicates that I should tithe? Yes, as a matter of fact, I can. <laughs> if you would turn to Matthew 23, 23. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices and mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then, for those of you that have pins, you may want to underline this. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, the principle of tithing did not end. It was just added to. And so we know that Jesus is stating tithing has not been done away in the New Testament. In fact, the standards of tithing and offerings are higher than they were. So what this means is if you're not giving 10% of your income back to the Lord, and for some of you, you're going... There is no possible way in the way that I live right now that I can do that overnight. Can I just tell you that, again, for those of you that come to Christ when you're already adults and you have certain spending patterns, we have people that would love to help walk alongside of you to help rebudget and understand these things because sometimes you can't do that overnight. But I want you to know God will honor whatever obedience you can start to as you make your way to get there. We could fill this room with testimonies of that. Secondly, one of the things that's being brought out in this parable is that we are in need of a love that is not here. 
In verses 8 and 9 of Luke 16, it says, For the people of this world are more shrewd in their dealing their own kind than the people of the light. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Jesus is kind of doing one of these if this, then how much more kind of comparisons here. That's the kind of argument he's doing this. So, so it looks like this. So what did the manager do? In recognizing that he was about to lose his job because of the dishonest way he had handled things, he decided rather than the short-term financial gain that he could get if he kept those charges, that he put his money into something that was more long-term and ultimately more valuable, and that was, I'm going to develop relationships. People matter. The relationships matter more than the short-term financial gain that I can get. And so Jesus is holding this up saying, even within a secular framework, People know that the best thing to do is to put your money into something that will increase in value. And it would be better to limit how much you may be making now if it means that you can invest in something that long-term will be far more profitable and far more valuable than anything that you have now. And so Jesus asks us to look at ourselves and ask this question. What will really last what in our lives will really last? Because Jesus clearly says to each and every one of us, there's going to come a time when your wealth will be gone. There's going to come a time when everything that you value and everything that you have earned to make is going to be gone. And he gives us this perspective that there is no investment in this world that will last. There's no asset there's no material, no item, no thing, no property that you can put your money into that is going to last. And so Jesus tells us that each of us are given the same opportunity to invest in things that will. A few years ago, I was at a missions golf tournament where we were raising money for for missionaries, and my dad and I were a team together, and one of the guys, a guy and his son that we were playing against was, uh, as we got to talking to him, he told me that he had been a school teacher, but he retired early. And he says, in fact, you want to know why I'm able to play in this golf tournament today? And I said, no, why? He goes, because I had a friend who advised me when Apple was beginning to invest some money in them. He said, I invested enough money in that that I will never have to work, nor will my children ever have to work another day in their lives. And he says, I'm here because I was given an opportunity. And I looked at him, and I thought, when I come back to the church, any of you starting any businesses that you think are, are going to be really, really profitable, I'm just, just throwing that out there, because we all like opportunity. And Jesus said, I'm giving all of you the same opportunity. I'm giving all of you the same opportunity that you can invest in something that literally will last for eternity. Put your money into the kingdom of God because in his eternal kingdom, it will grow more valuable than you could have ever dreamed. Invest your money in a way that there is glory in heaven. Invest your money in a way that you bring people to Christ, that you build the kingdom of God. Do something that you can never lose. Enjoy the opportunity that you have been given. And so God approaches us with this idea at a head level. 
informing us that this is an investment we can never lose, and so we understand that. And, but he also knows that just because he approaches something at the head level doesn't necessarily, that because we know something is right, that we will automatically do what is right. And so he proceeds from there to approach us at a heart level. Now, how many of you have tried your best to picture what heaven looks like? Have you ever done that? I would love if all of us were artists enough to begin to accurately draw or paint whatever we think heaven's going to look like. All I know is that Jesus has told us that what we consider cement here in heaven, that's going to be gold. The most valuable thing we have here is what we walk on there. And so when that is your base, when that's your starting point, it's amazing where our minds can go in all of that. But just because we know that gold in heaven is going to be our cement and we have this head knowledge doesn't necessarily mean that we will automatically invest in that. And so look to what he says to us to warm our hearts in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What he is saying is use your worldly wealth to make sure that people get to heaven Use your worldly wealth to develop the relationships that will never go away. Michael Whitlock, who has written a commentary on Luke, puts it perfectly when he says at this point. He says, this is the point of this parable. Although these things, your property, your ability, your time, belong to this life only, Jesus says, what will happen to you then when you pass on into the afterlife will depend upon what you're doing with them here and now. Make sure that your use of money brings you into a fellowship of friends which will survive beyond your death. This is definitely the narrative that Jesus is speaking of here. The steward in this parable realizes suddenly it's more important to have friends than it is to have money. So he forgoes the money that he could make to generate the friendships that he ultimately has found that there will be more value in. So I tell you this, money will never give you significance. Money will never give you the security that you think it will because it is paper thin. Money overpromises and money underdelivers. And in the end, what Jesus is saying is that there is something within all of us that desire to be loved in our friendships. The significance that we need is found in love, and it's ultimately the thing that you need, and it is ultimately the thing that God provides. But even in this, Jesus is pointing something out. He says, the love that you experience here and the friendships that you experience here are only a shadow of what will take place there. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon and it's one that you can find online, and it's, it's titled, Heaven is a World of Love. And in that, Jonathan Edwards points out five things. He said, primarily, heaven is a place of love because it's actually what every one of us deeply long for. And then he goes on to say this, as much as love is a source of joy, in this life, it is also a source of pain. Because in this side of heaven, we face five barriers to love. Number one is that we all want to be loved for our own sake. How many of you, and I won't ask for a show of hands, how many of you have experienced the pain of thinking that somebody loved you for you only to realize that they really only loved you for what they could get out of you? 
They loved you for something else. And the moment that they quit getting that from you, their love dried up. And you realized that you were just being used and it's painful. Basically, on this side of heaven, every one of us will have a difficulty of loving other people just for their own sake. We love them for what we can get out of them. But God said to us, I need you to know that that has been perfected on the other side when you get to heaven because there you won't have to worry about that anymore because there you will be loved absolutely and completely and fully. That which is a hindrance here to love is going to be fully developed there. And the thing that we struggle with will be gone. Secondly, we, in our love, we want to express our love without impediment. Because of pride and selfishness and coldness, there are some of you that have had a difficult time expressing to others how much you love them. There are children, and I have had opportunity to have conversations with adult children who are unbelievably loved by their parents, but they don't know it because their parents were never able to articulate that and put it into words. And so they grew up feeling as if somehow I was unloved, even though their parents loved them deeply, but just were never able to express that. There are also other people who love deeply but are so frustrated because they don't know how to put it into words. They don't know how to express what they feel, and it leaves others wounded and feeling unloved even though there was something deep there. But it will always remain unexpressed on this side. But there, when we get to heaven, there will be love without impediment, and you will be able to fully express it, and you will be able to fully receive it in the same measureless ways. The third way that we want to be loved is we want to be loved mutually. There is something about love that deeply and intensely desires reciprocity. My wife Cindy and I have an ongoing argument that started 42 years ago when it was just about this time of the year that I told her for the first time that I loved her. I was way ahead of her. And we have this argument that who loves each other the most? I started first, and she can never catch up. But she tries to express to me that somehow she was able to. So I. But in this wonderful argument we have, while we laugh and we enjoy the fact that we can have that argument, deep down inside, that's an argument that neither one of us wants to win. We don't want to think that we're involved in a relationship where we are not loved mutually and there are a lot of people who on this side of heaven are always fearful that they're putting more into a relationship than they're getting in return. And in this life, so many people you love, you love more than they love you back, and that has caused nothing but pain. But there, but there on the other side, everybody will love everybody else mutually and fully. It will be a perfect love on the other side. Fourthly, we want Love and perfect happiness. Do you know that when you love somebody and they're not happy, it destroys your ability to be happy? In fact, oftentimes we insert our happiness into the love and happiness of others. And so that if they are miserable, your ability to be happy will be limited because of their not being happy. In fact, I've said this on Mother's Day in the past. A mother is only as happy as her most unhappy child. 
And we live in a world where loving people is a source of pain, oftentimes more than joy. But there, on the other side that we invest in, everybody will be perfectly happy, and the people we love will be perfectly happy, so that finally we can be perfectly happy. In fact, do you realize there are two questions, at least two, but I thought of these two, that you will never have to ask somebody in heaven. Number one is this, what's wrong? And the second question you'll never have to ask is, are you okay? You'll never have to ask those there. And then the fifth thing about loving people that we don't experience in perfection here is we want to love without parting. There is nothing worse than when you marry somebody knowing that one of you is going to have to grieve the death of the other. In fact, when you gather together at big family gatherings and you're around the table, there is one of you that's sitting around that table that will have to grieve the death of everybody else around that table. But not there. Not on the other side. Not where perfect love exists. Because there, there will be no more pain. And there will be no more tears. And there will be no more separation. And you and I were formed and meant for this kind of love, not the kind of love that we experience here. We were designed for perfect love and we're designed for what Jesus said heaven is going to be like. And so he tells each of us, invest in relationships that are going to last all the way to over there. Do you realize that when you believe that everything is going to be perfect there and everything you long for will be perfect there, it changes the way you live here. It changes the way the economy of your life is lived here. It changes the way you can face life. And so I want you to understand that what Jesus is saying here is use your money, use your earthly wealth, use your possessions, use everything you have to build my church and to build missions and win people for Christ so that when you get there, you will be welcomed with eternal friendships and relationships that will never, ever end. So what does this mean? It means that locally and globally we're pursuing every heart with the love of Jesus and we're willing to invest ourselves and our time and our talent and our money in that because relationships with people, leading them to Christ is what will last for eternity. And that's the only thing that's going to matter in the end. So never make money at the expense of people. Money fails and is temporary. People are eternal. Put your money in God's kingdom and it will last forever. And when you help bring the word of God and connect those who are lost with the grace of Jesus Christ, they will be your friend forever and ever and ever, literally. So use your money to make friends forever. Friends that will survive beyond death. Those relationships are eternal. Worship team, if you'd please come. I am grateful that I am able to use this Word of God today and preach this message in a time when our church is financially healthy. But many of you, I know, are new believers and you're still trying to figure out what does the economy of God look like? And I need you to understand the opportunities that are provided for every one of us that when we can stand before God and say, everything you have given to me, Lord, is a result of the life and breath and health and circumstances you provided for me. And so, Father, knowing all of that, I want to honor you, not just be a good worshiper, but I want to honor you as a disciple in every area of my life.